Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, Vice Canada has revealed a former neo-Nazi is employed at Hamilton City Hall in the IT department. A judge has been appointed as the head of the judicial inquiry into the buried Red Hill report. And also, an appeal filed in the Robert Bajero case was denied yesterday. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Yesterday, though, Vice Canada released a story about how a former neo-Nazi is employed at Hamilton City Hall in the IT department and has been for quite some time, as a matter of fact. Advocates are saying that he should not be part of the government. Uh, A lot of up and down about this. Uh, Hamilton City Council met behind closed doors about this yesterday evening and uh, to try to get an update. Uh, We've reached out to a number of people on city staff and on Hamilton Council, and uh, they're being mum on this. And their rationale, and I can see that to a certain point, is look, it's a personnel issue, and we really can't talk about it publicly. But that doesn't mean the public doesn't have some concerns about this. Evelyn Myrie, president of the Afro-Canadian Caribbean Association, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Hi, Evelyn. How are you doing today? Hey, good morning, Bill. I'm doing well. Thank you. Your reaction when you heard this news? I am absolutely shocked, to be honest with you, that someone in that position having uh, access to, you know, security information with, um, you know, having a, one of Canada's former, foremost racist uh, individual in that role is, disturbing and wow that's shocking I, i'm absolutely um this is shocked <laughs> I, I don't know where i could find right now that it's shocking that you'd have someone with that kind of a resume um in his personal uh, and um political life in such position in our own city that's now, our, our key value is to address hamilton brawl well, well it raises so many questions first of all how did it happen why did it happen uh, and and those are two questions I think that need to be dealt with, and we're waiting for answers from the city on that. Yes, I, I think we need to have a full uh, investigation into that because it looks to me, based on the, what I've read, is that the city was aware of it, and they it appeared that they took steps to minimize the public's knowledge of it. So they knew something was wrong. If his name is not a part of the the, the regular listing on the directories or his phone line is anonymous, then as opposed to others, you call City Hall, you know, staff members to get your name and say, I'll call you back later, et cetera, et cetera. But he's apparently based on the Vice article that is missing from his line. So it would appear that steps were, have been taken to um, minimize his knowledge that he's hired there. But doesn't that make a bad situation even worse? I, that's I me. Mean, I'm more upset at the city than then say the person um, because of the way it seems, you know, what I've read, to be handling it. Like everybody's protecting and covering up this person's um, site when he's hired there. And I think we should be concerned. I mean, I read a few of the stories about his background. And, you know, as young people, if you're a young teenager, we make mistakes. We all do. So we're not some, you know, some perfect people. And people do change. But this person is like older and it's only been 11 years he says he hasn't been involved so he was 33 and then i look at the fact that he was going to be speaking at his lawyer's funeral uh or somebody had passed away and who was um you know working for him around the issue of um censorship and the old issue of uh, human rights issues and he was going to be one of the speakers there so how uninvolved is he in politics politics is also personal so What's his philosophy, his ideology has shifted? You're a manager at city IT department where you're 
perhaps responsible. I don't know the scope the scope of his work, but I'm sure you work with many immigrants and you know racialized communities, men from the Jewish communities. How have those people been treated over the years? Um, you know, by him, I don't know, but these are the questions that need to be answered. Um, I'm disturbed by what I've read, and uh, you know, the, the issues raised by many individuals already around being in that role. We all have to make a living, and we are not suggesting that hey, you should never get a job. But to get a job in an IT, in a senior IT role, for someone with that background, is this is is it's just shocking. I mean, we're getting little tidbits of information. By the way, the reference uh, to the lawyer that you were just mentioning here uh, was a lawyer by the name of Doug Christie, who was actually one of the people that defended uh, Ernst Zundel, who was the uh, Holocaust denier that was on trial for so many years, of course, uh, some time ago. Uh, and and I, I know that the individual involved here at the city is, it maintains that he's out of politics right now. And uh, he now, he, I guess, he is now has nothing to do with what he calls well, the Heritage Front, was the organization, of course. Uh, but, uh, the, again, Vice has reported that he still maintains a uh, free speech uh, website that talks about things like this. Uh, and to your point, Evelyn, uh, you say people change. I, I would qualify that and say sometimes people change, not all the right. time. Absolutely. But I'm thinking, we, we, you know, you want to say, if you have changed, how have you demonstrated that? You know, what kind of a training has he done? Was it, what kind of a, a redemption process has he gone through to say, you know, look, look at me once I felt this way. Today, I'm doing this kind of work, helping the community really build a uh, strong and vibrant, welcoming Hamilton, and I put those things aside. I don't know that there would have been interesting to see where he was and where he is today. Um, demonstrated, I, I do not know that. But that's the problem. We don't know a whole lot, except what his background was and the fact that there seems to be, at least according to the report from Vice, uh, there was some effort on behalf of the city to hush this thing up, and, and uh, now it's not not only just not talk about it, but it, you know, basically try to cloak this thing. Well, I like what the new um, you, the city manager said that she's going to uh, do a you know very uh, deep investigation into this and present the report. But we need to have key questions asked. And I would, you know, like her to um, really dig deeper and find out how this happened and why would you put someone with that ideology, is that ideology shifted? And putting people in that position um, with such a disgusting background and the, the comments and the behavior is, um, you know, things you have done in the past and say, I'm in charge of security for the city with a racist background, very strong racist background and anti-Semitic. Uh, neo-Nazis um, point of view, it's like Canada's, uh, it's kind of the Canada's Ku Klux Klan running, <laughs> running our city department, you know, oh, oh, not running it, but being a, a manager. And uh, and having and access to all sorts of private information, information as an IT rep, yeah. And I think a councilmatic weak point is she's, you know, well taken about him feeling um, being exposed and betrayed because he's one of the only, he was the only black city councillor. There are other people also who are from different cultural backgrounds, immigrants, who should feel betrayed that their information is being handled by someone with that, um, you know, history. Well, um, there's there's another element to this, too, and I think we need to talk about this in, in the broader context. Uh, the, the reporting that we've seen on this, uh, from including a, a gentleman by the name of Craig Burley, who's a local lawyer here in Hamilton, uh, suggested that he informed the city about this and about this individual's background months ago. 
Uh, and now it's like yesterday that all of a sudden this became news. Why did the city sit on this information for so long? Why didn't they do anything about it? Why didn't they talk about it then? And that's that's what I said earlier. It's unconscionable that the city would not take stronger action, at least be transparent about it and put it to bed if it's you know it's been addressed. But it has not. It seems as though it was protecting this person. And I know as an HR has to do their work. But at what cost do we expose the public and people who are racialized and people that this person expresses disgust for and having him in such high position? You know, in an IT position, it, it deals with our security, it deals with access to information that are oftentimes, you know, could be oftentimes sensitive. I do not know, as I mentioned, the scope of his work, but it would appear to me, you know, to the average person that this, this is a sensitive area of work. We rely on IT for information filtering for, um, you know, our security issues. And to have him in that role is um, is just despicable. The other element to this is, is uh, and again, it goes to the credibility of, I guess, the city staff. This is the second time in a couple of months, Evelyn, that we found out that the city had information that they didn't share, that they probably should have. The other was was the Red Hill, and, and that investigation's about to begin, and we're, we're going to talk about that a little bit later on in the show here. And uh, But that's one element. But one of the, the key elements in that investigation is the fact that there was information there that the city staff did not share with other councillors and certainly with the public. Now it seems as if they've done it again with this individual. It's becoming, it looks like it's becoming some kind of a pattern. Yeah. Speech and uh, that's rather troubling, isn't it? And citizens should you know, make our, our councils accountable. And I, I urge my community, um, the Afro-Canadian Academy Association is 40 years uh, strong in this community, and we are totally um, shocked by what we are learning about the access to, of uh, Mark and the, or the access he has to our information system. As, um, you know, there's strong members of our community, of the community here, we, are, we, are, we feel a bit let down by the city quite frankly, the way this has been handled. And we do hope the city manager, the new city manager, will put this as a major priority to assure confidence in our community among all the different uh, cultural communities, racialized communities, that they are taking this seriously and they will address it appropriately. And that's what we are asking for right now. He's already hired. They've got to find a way to either unhire him or find some way to make sure that our confidence is restored. Because this is a, for the racialized community and for the black community in Hamilton. This is, and, and I'm sure I, I can speak on behalf of many of my colleagues in the Jewish community, many of whom we work with, um, that they're also, you know, disgusted. And average Hamiltonians, you know, from all walks of life. Sure. Not to be concerned about this. Well, as they should be. Uh, and, and just as we're about to do with the Red Hill, uh, we need to get some questions answered here. Uh, you know, who knew what? When did they know it? Uh, you know, did they know about this at the beginning? Did, uh, was, was this something that they just said, oh, it's no big deal? Or did they just recently find out about it? But even if it was recent, according to what Mr. Burley says, recent means months ago. And now we're just finding out about it here in, in on, you know, May 9th. It's it's yes, it's it's it's, it's rather troubling yeah. to know that that's the sort of, it sat on somebody's it's, desk. It's troubling the 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 the, the, uh, the length the city it appears that the city have gone to protect <laughs> this uh, individual from being known as an employee. 
then? That's another question. Why would you go to such length if you're, you know, what's the concern then? Why, why wouldn't you put him somewhere else if you realize that he possibly could be a threat to our security system in terms of, uh, our security in terms of the role he plays and the confidence we might have as a community in someone like that um, having the role? We are, we are supposed to be a city of immigrants. We are a city of immigrants. And if, if his feelings or perspective around immigrants is, you know, in a negative, um, why would we have him in that kind of position? What do you want to see happen here? Obviously, the new city manager says she... Investigation, huge. Yeah, and, that's, uh, that's, that's got to be the first step. Yes, that's the first step. And to get the facts straight, and we understand how this happened. And then we can say, you know what, we, we see what happened there, and we have to find some ways to address it from a policy end, how in the future we address these situations. How do we do screening, better screening, without, you know, over-policing people who are looking for jobs, because we have to be careful as well, right, as to um, how we approach hiring. But there has to be some policy coming out of this as to how we, we would ensure that this kind of um, situation is, doesn't happen again or is minimized to the least. Well, and it's and again, it's the old adage about who knew what and when, and and, and that's the thing we have to ask ourselves <laughs> at the stage. That's it, always. That's, the base, that, that's what I'm waiting for the new city manager to tell us. That's what we should have. Uh, the individual involved, I guess, did respond. The spectator carried the story, of course, and and he has suggested that uh, that the reporting uh, that they have there is inaccurate. Uh, he doesn't specify which parts are inaccurate, which parts aren't. I mean, some of the stuff is actually ac- accurate, obviously, about what he, his past was like. Uh, you know, the, and, like- and, but the city's not talking, and and I and I understand to a point. You know, well, it's a personnel issue. I get that, but this this kind of goes above and beyond, doesn't it? Well, it is, but I, as I said, I, I, I like the approach that so far the city manager is taken, so I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt to do that work. But, um, no, I, I just think that the city is <laughs> made a big faux pas the way they've addressed it. They have not addressed it adequately at all when it was raised months ago, and that's, that's uh, a big concern for us. What confidence do we have our own city to make these kind of decisions and to make sure that their equity policies are you know, tightened, uh, their HR policies are respectful of the employee, but also of the people that we are serving in this community. Um, and, and I think that was jeopardized. Um, that's problematic when you have someone who hold ideologies. And, you know, Bill, there's something I always call out and say, the personal is political. So if someone has that, even though, well, I'm not, um, if they're in a the managerial position and they have staff, that perhaps they manage. What does the staff look like in terms of racialized backgrounds, uh, religious backgrounds, and all these uh, staff treated? That's at the micro level, but I'm curious as to how, you know, staff would um, respond to that as well. How have they been treated in that department? Because that's handles the human nature. Right? That's personally political. You might not out there with a, with a, with, you might be out there with a lob, uh, lobbying or rallying or or these kind of things that are distributing flyers about against immigrants. He just had, when the Ebola crisis uh, came about, apparently he was at the Henderson giving out flyers saying immigrants uh, could kill us or something. <laughs> so it wasn't that long ago, yeah. right? And you're the manager of IT, where we have immigrants' information to access to all these communities, that um, or the, all these residents in our city from various cultural backgrounds. Uh, I, 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 I'm just... I just find it unconscionable that well, a city would um, hire someone with that. Well, that, that and that raises questions about the screening process for employees, doesn't it? Right. It has to do uh, better screening 
But, you know, we have to make sure that's measured as well. That's why I've always want to make sure to protect people's rights. You know, we don't want to be um, the big brother in everything, which is close to what we're doing now for everything, but we have to be mindful of that. But, yeah, we've got to find some best practice to um, examine how we hire and looking at some way without infringing on people's rights um, about their background. And this guy was always in the news. You know, yep. he was he wasn't something hidden. He's been on the news all across Canada. He's one of the most one of the most notorious groups in, in Canada about against um ra- about racism, just um, racist group as well as neo-Nazi group. So it's shocking that that no one knew or heard about I've heard about him before. Well, somebody did, I, and we'll <laughs> wait. To, uh, Janet Smith got me. This is just tossed on her table. She's only been on the job a few days, but this is something we need to get some answers to. Evelyn, thanks as always. Really appreciate your input into this. We'll uh, be waiting for more information. Thank you so much. Take care. Evelyn Myrie, of course, the uh, president of the Afro-Canadian Caribbean Association. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The judge has now been appointed as the head of the uh, judicial inquiry uh, looking into the uh, Red Hill Parkway incidents that have occurred over the last little while. And uh, joining us to talk about this is Brad Clark, City Councilor, of course, uh, for Hamilton up on Stony Creek Mountain. Brad, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing fine, Bill. How are you, sir? Good, good. I'm not going to ask you to comment on the other situation because I understand that uh, either employees, confidentiality, etc. But we'll we'll hear about that in due time, I'm I'm sure. But let's let's talk about this. Uh, you've spent a lot of time as a council putting the, the report together, uh, putting co- questions together, trying to put the parameters for this right now. Uh, they've come forward with a judge now, and this is a, an individual that uh, is not unfamiliar to you as a councillor. Uh, yes, uh, Justice uh, Herman Wilton Siegel is, is actually a well-respected jurist, so uh, I was very pleased to see that he was appointed the justice to handle the judicial investigation. He, uh, for the sake of people who may say, yeah, that kind of rings a bell, he was uh, very much involved, of course, in the uh, CCAA process with, uh, with Stelco slash U.S. Steel slash the federal government and the city, of course, on and on and on, and made a number of different rulings on that. Uh, and also, of course, it was uh, in, it has had some work with the other elements of the city. So he's this is this is not a, a new thing for him. He's he's aware of what's going on here, and I'm sure he's aware of the circumstances surrounding this. Yeah, if I recall, the most recent case that he was involved in was the judicial review with regards to the um, levy increase for the Niagara Peninsula Conservation Authority and the city's challenging of that. So, I mean, he he's well-known in the city, and he certainly knows uh, the city well. Well, I know you weren't thrilled with his ruling on that, but uh, <laughs> perhaps we'll just turn the page and see what happens uh, with uh, with the new report. Now, how do you see this rolling out from here? At this point, Brad, do you just kind of throw it off there and say, good luck, Your Honor, and get back to us when you're done? Uh, he's already started working on it, on it Bill, to be honest. I mean, he has... Um, uh, retained his um, during a judicial investigation. The judge who is is overseeing the investigation uh, has the authority to hire a a inquiry lawyer, if you will, that will work for him. So he, the lawyer uh, that was retained, was Robert Senta. Um, again, a, a well-known lawyer, uh, very well respected, and and so he's already retained that legal counsel. And now the next step that, that will happen is, is the gathering of all of the documentation uh, from the municipality, and I would expect that he will, would begin setting up meetings with uh, municipal staff, 
um, just to make sure that he's got all of the information that he needs, and then you would begin the inquiry. So the inquiry itself, the hearing, uh, won't necessarily happen that quickly. Uh, he has to gather a lot of evidence and, and get a feel for what's going on before he actually begins the, the hearing process. We know that uh, the council put forth 24 questions that, that you'd like answered in this situation, but were there any other parameters that, uh, that uh, the justice is going to have to work within? No, but he does have the latitude that if something comes up in the investigation and he wants to investigate a, a, a tangent issue that's attached to the Red Hill uh, disclosure issue, uh, he has that authority. Uh, the city lawyer and the outside legal counsel that um, the city council retained uh, reviewed the 24 uh, questions that council put forth uh, in terms of what the terms of reference or the scope of the investigation should be. And uh, they went forward to the chief justice uh, and, and they were slightly modified basically to make sure that the questions that were being asked were neutral, uh, that you can't lean towards a certain answer or, or try to inflict a bias into the inquiry. So um, I was very pleased with the work that the outside legal counsel did on that. They reviewed the questions, they modified them to be appropriate for uh, questions that would be researched through the inquiry. So we are moving forward relatively quickly. And I, if you recall, Bill, um, there were people that were saying it'll be six months a year before we even get a judge appointed, mm-hmm. and uh, it happened very quickly, uh, as was my expectation. They take these things very seriously, and they move as quickly as they can. Now, obviously, the city's uh, involvement in this is, is going to be paramount, but we've also learned uh, subsequently, though, Brad, that the the province did some investigation into the roadway and into the, the asphalt situation, too. Does the, the, does the judge go down that road as well? Yes, that was added to the scope, um, so the, the judge would likely um, receive those documents also. Um, you have to understand that there's a lot of engineering documents that have now come forward, uh, at least four to six that I'm aware of already, um, and some of them may have competing information. They may not exactly agree, so he has to, to go through those documents. Uh, and then subsequently, I would expect that if he wants further clarification, then he may choose to interview the actual author of those documents uh, to understand it more clearly. But the province had done testing. Um, they had not informed the city that they were doing the testing, nor did they inform the city uh, what the results of the testing was. And that, and that was um, rather troubling for, for the city councillors to hear that that was the case from the province. Well, one of the questions that I, that I raised when we found out about this information, of course, is first of all, why were they doing it in the first place? Uh, you know, was it was it in response to some comp- concerns, complaints? We we don't really know yet, do we? No, and they're not really talking. <laughs> so that's not that like government. Nice <laughs> <laughs> well, we've seen that happen before. Yeah, uh, but it would be helpful if they had at least shared their motivation. What was the motivation? Was this a standard test that was was done because? You, you want to make sure that the asphalt grade that was used uh, was appropriate. Um, but it is interesting that they were testing on a, a parkway that was not under their jurisdiction. And so that question was raised by counselors. And, and it just ba- it, 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 it leaves you with the impression that maybe there was something going on and they just didn't share it with anyone. And because they're not answering that question, naturally, 
the public would would lean in that direction. Oh, well, something's not right here, and we need to put all of the suspicions to the side. Let's just have the inquiry, get the facts out, and make sure everyone is informed. Well, because the more I've, I've talked with you and your council colleagues about this, the more I get a real sense of, of, of simply utter frustration about this, because you guys were kept in the dark about an awful lot of stuff. And, and maybe maybe some people on city staff were kept in the dark about this. I, I, that hopefully is all going to come out when the investigation is finally completed. But boy, this is it, it, it's really puzzling, I guess, to a certain extent, to know that something like this could be happening, and, and at least two levels of government seem to be involved in it in some way, shape, or form. Uh, yet not much of in the way of information sharing. Yeah, it, it uh, truly is a head-scratcher and, and one that I have not experienced before. I, 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 in, and and in you've been on both sides life. of the fence, both for, you know, municipally and, and provincially. Absolutely, and transparency is, is vitally important uh, in, in any governance model. And so it, it is very curious, and, and I think that's why a, a number of the councils say, well, we really just need to know who knew and, and why wasn't it brought forward. And that question could be obviously asked of the provincial government also. Did the minister know? We don't know how far up the information went. We don't even know what they, 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 the concern was. Um, but these questions do need to be asked in a formal setting um, and be completely transparent. And, and that's what is key about the judicial investigation. The public will hear these questions being asked, Bill, and hear the answer. And then they can also judge as well as the, the, the outcome of the judicial investigation. So 100% transparent process, and, and, and I think it's needed. And, and that's an important part of this. I, I'm obviously we've we've been schooled on investigations, etc. From what we're watching from south of the border over the last little while, and we've seen the, the the controversy that can emanate from these sorts of things when it's done behind closed doors, which and things are redacted, etc. Uh, that's not going to happen in this case, is it? No, that's correct. And and it would have happened. Uh, I mean, if we'd had an auditor general do the work, then all of the interviews would have been private and then a summary and a report comes out. And so it would still have these questions nagging at us because we really wouldn't know what the interviewees were saying to the Auditor General. In this case, uh, when the justice is asking the questions or the lawyers are asking the questions of the witness, everything is public. And so they're, they're, it just removes that that cynicism that the, the, the broader community uh, uh, and we've seen it down down south of the border. Uh, the re- report was summarized with a political bend as opposed to giving us, just give us the straight facts. Here, we're going to get the straight facts. Any idea? And obviously, it's early days on this situation, but uh, the, the cost is obviously a concern. I know a number of you and your colleagues uh, raised some concerns about that. Uh, if the justice is going to move quickly on this, uh, obviously, that's going to control costs, and I guess it's it's worthy of reminding our listeners that that the number that you guys talked about is actually a ceiling at this stage, isn't it? That's correct. Uh, it, it's not the actual um, uh, end price. It's 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 a cap, if you will, in terms of what our expectation is, so that we have the money available to utilize. Uh, but as I said from the very beginning, I would expect that a judicial investigation with such a narrow scope in this case, would, would likely cost about a million to a million and a half dollars. I can't see it getting to the seven million, or some have been trotting out $11 million figure. Uh, those are, are figures that came from really significant, broadly scoped inquiries of national interest. Uh, 
there that that's not the case here this is this is a relatively small issue uh, on a local scene um, and so the scoping is not going to to Elicit uh, such a price tag, it, it just I, I just can't see it happening. Well, let's face it. I mean, it, it, when you're doing these sorts of things, one of the main factors, I guess, and one of the drivers of, of the cost of these things can be staffing. Uh, I, I'm just off the top of my head. I don't know what the justice has in mind, but I can't see that there's going to be a large number of staff people involved in this because there aren't a whole lot of people to talk to here. Yeah, no, historically, an inquiry would have his lawyer. Uh, so in this case, he's already retained his lawyer. Uh, the the uh, justice will will hire someone to set up a web page uh, so that everything that is occurring in the inquiry is completely public, um, and it's not unusual for the justice to hire uh, some type of assistant who would uh, do the bookings of the venues for the hearing and things along that line. So it's a relatively narrow group of individuals that would be directly involved. Uh, and as I said, the, the, the inquiries where the costs become significant are usually inquiries that are really broad-based, large provincial or federal inquiries like the Cleaver Inquiry, which, which went on for some time and, and hundreds of, of witnesses, and it was a significant investigation. This is not that case. So um, I, I stand by my earlier comments. I, I said at the time that we would likely get a justice appointed very quickly. We did, and I expect that the cost would be in around the $1.5 million mark. All right, let's uh, again reference the Mueller thing, if I could. Uh, when this is all said and done, whenever that's going to be, and I agree, Brad, I think it's going to be sooner than later in a in cir- circumstance like this, uh, is, is the justice charged at this stage with simply presenting the facts as he's uh, been able to gather them, or are you also looking for an opinion here? Because uh, that, that obviously is one of the controversial things about the Mueller report, uh, is, is that the suggestions and the recommendations that they expected were never there in that report uh, are you looking for something of substance like that from the justice? Yeah, the justice in this case would, would be interviewing the witnesses, and all of that process would be public. The cross-examination of any witnesses would be public. Uh, the justice will then compile uh, an actual document, a full report on the investigation, uh, and, and the justice has the authority um, to make recommendations, to come to conclusions, to indicate where he believes the challenge was, um, and so it, it it really is a, a uh, there's a decision attached to it. He, you know, he could indicate if there was wrongdoing. Certain people did this wrong, and they should not have done that, or whatever the case is. And then there'll be a long list of recommendations uh, to the municipality to ensure that this type of issue does not happen again. Uh, so it, it is a much more fulsome. It's what we would expect from a judge in terms of the natural uh, judicial investigation, a report or a decision. Uh, it, it's not simply um, providing us a list of what everyone says and leaves it up to the, the public to decide who's, who's right or who's wrong. Well, with the justice writing this report, obviously, the, you're going to get a legal opinion on this, too. I mean, invariably, you know, there's going to be some debate about how counsel should proceed after they get this information. But if, the, if for instance, there's nothing legally uh, uh, forthcoming out of this, in other words, there was nothing, no laws were broken, uh, that obviously sets the path to, to which counsel can respond. And obviously, then you're, you're going to do what you have to do in a, in a situation like that. But are you, are you concerned also, though, about liability? Because that's hanging out there, too. The liability hangs out there regardless of the outcome of the investigation. Um, a judicial investigation cannot be utilized for criminal findings 
or or for civil litigation. Uh, they may find information out as a result of interviews, but uh, any civil litigation, they're still going to have to go out of their way to to subpoena witnesses and, and to get their own evidence in that matter. Um, I There are so many variables involved with regards to any accident that occurs on a road. Um, I, while there may be litigation, I, I, I cannot see the, the city being held culpable uh, for every accident that has occurred on the road. But that's a separate issue, and it's not a part of the judicial investigation. It's a, a different judge would would be dealing with any potential litigation down the road. Yeah, and, and we've talked to some legal experts about that too. And and again, we're, we're kind of talking on the, the philosophical end of here because we don't know all the facts involved in this. But the consensus I got from them, Brad, was that the threshold's pretty high. Uh, and, and again, you know, we, we don't want to presuppose exactly what the, the report's going to say here. So uh, that's, as you say, it may not be able to be used in, in a litigation, but it's certainly going to be informative for both sides, I guess. Yeah, and, and that's the case. And if, if the judge... Uh, uncover something where there was criminal wrongdoing, um, then the justice can refer that that matter directly to the police, um, and and then there would be a subsequent investigation on that. But the judge does not make a decision on criminal uh, wrongdoing. The judge can make a decision that someone erred, that there was there was um, uh, wrongdoing itself, but it's not at the, the level of of a, of a crime. It's it's quite literally a fact-finding investigation. Brad, we'll see. Uh, Sooner than later, I think we're going to get some information on this, but at least it's good to know that the justice has been appointed, and uh, he seems to be be pretty aggressive about this. So I guess we're going to get the the details about this sooner than later. Thanks so much for the time today. My pleasure, Bill. That's uh, Hamilton Councillor Brad Clark. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Another big announcement yesterday, though. The appeal filed for Robert Badger was denied yesterday after nearly 40 years. It looks like this has finally been settled, or has it? Susan Clamont has been covering this. Of course, she is the award-winning columnist for the Hamilton Spectator. She joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to uh, bring us up to speed on this. Hi, Susan. How are you doing today? I'm good, Bill. Thanks. Good. Finally, we get an answer uh, on all of this. Were you surprised by the verdict? No, I wasn't surprised. Um, you know, I was there when uh, um, when he was convicted, when Robert Badger was convicted uh, at his fourth trial. I was going to ask you which murder. time, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and... Uh, I don't mean to make light of this, but boy, this has gone on for a long time. It sure has. I was actually thinking, Bill, I wonder how many times I've been on your show talking about this case. M- many, many. Many. Um so I was in court for his his fourth trial. I was there when uh, the trial judge uh, read his instructions to the jury, and I didn't think that there were any problems with it. And uh, the Court of Appeal thought the same thing. Um, you know, in order for Badgero to have successfully appealed that verdict, he would have had to prove that, that the judge made an error in law. And uh, the uh, Court of Appeal upheld uh, the judge's, um, the jury's decision and said there were no problems and the conviction stands. Well, I remember a conversation you and I had just after that, uh, that initial, that fourth one was done. And, and you, you mentioned at the time that, look, they were meticulous in how they approached this thing, both, both the Crown and certainly uh, the justice in the situation because of what had happened in the past. So that's why I was surprised there was even an appeal in the first place. Well, I mean, there usually is an appeal. When you are convicted of first-degree murder, you have nothing to lose. And so in virtually every case, 
there is an attempt at an appeal. Um, and certainly Badro has done this before. He has appealed not only to the Court of Appeal for Ontario, which is where this most recent decision comes from, but in the past he's also tried to appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada. So there is that possibility here as well, Bill. Um, you know, you said, is this really the end? And it may not be. Um, you know, there may be a, a try by Badgero to take this to the Supreme Court. Well, and again, it, it, for him to do that, the burden is going to be on him to prove that something was, or his lawyers, obviously, there was something untoward in, in, in this appeal and in the trial itself. Uh, there would be, and to, there would be even more um, of, a, of an onus on Badro because he would also, in order to, to be heard by the Supreme Court, he would have to prove that there was some kind of a legal issue at stake here that would um, be of importance to the entire country. And, you know, this case, as you know, has been litigated for uh, decades now. I, I don't know that there are any um, issues that remain to be to be litigated. I mean, it, it's it's been gone over and over and over with a fine tooth comb. Um, I find it hard to believe that there would be anything of interest in there for the Supreme Court of Canada. But as this has gone through over these low these forty years now, it, it's almost as as you look at the information that was presented and the testimony that had been presented and uh, uh, the evidence that had been presented, Susan, it's almost a chronology of how forensics has, has advanced over the last forty years, hasn't it? It really is. Um, you know, I sometimes get asked by by readers, uh, "What is my?" Uh, favorite case to have covered and and uh, you know that's not the best term to use but certainly the most interesting case that I've covered in my career has been the Badgero case uh, because it spans nearly 40 years we see the progression of so many things we see um, the progression of forensic science we see the progression of law we see the progression of policing we see the progression of um, you know society's thoughts on sexuality and, um, you know, because there has been questions over the years about, um, Badger has always said that, that he had consensual sex mm -hmm. with Diane Rowendwitz and the thoughts on, you know, a young woman having anonymous consensual sex with a stranger um, is, uh, is interesting, the way thoughts on that have developed over the years. So it's a case that is just endlessly fascinating for me. How's the family doing? Uh, did, uh, did, did, they, did they have a sense of closure now? I, I don't know if they would use that word, Bill, um, but certainly they were pleased yesterday. Uh, I had a chance to speak with Carl Rowenowitz. He is Diane's uh, nephew, who is, um, you know, himself a grown man and a father now. That's how much time has passed here. And uh, there was certainly a sense of relief. And he, you know, minutes after the, the decision came down, he was heading over to speak to his father. Um, his father, Stephen, is, is Diane's brother, mm -hmm. and um, Stephen has been um, very ill and unable to attend uh, the most recent trials uh, for Badro. Um, and Carl's, one of Carl's fears was that his father would pass away without um, this moment coming. And so he was very pleased to be able to go and deliver um, the news to his dad yesterday that 
Badro is going back to prison, um, hopefully to serve out his life sentence. I, it's it's got to take a toll. I mean, you've covered these trials. You've come to know the family. You've come to know both families, frankly, and, and on either side mm-hmm. of the situation. Yeah. Uh, th- this has got to be taxing. Absolutely. Um, you know, the Rondowitz family has lived uh, with this for um, for 40 years. It's um, always in their thoughts. Um, sitting through the trials has been incredibly difficult for the various family members who have been there. Um, but, you know, you've made a good point that this is, um, while the Rwandans family has carried the brunt of this, it's also been incredibly difficult for the Badgero family. Uh, his mother and his father and his brother have stuck by him every step of the way. And when I yesterday when I interviewed uh, Crown Attorney Cheryl Zick, who has been with this case from the beginning, you know, we talked about um, the toll it's taken on others as well. For instance, the witnesses who have had to testify at four different trials, the nearly 50 jurors who have sat on these four different trials. And, you know, I've, I've interviewed many of the jurors over the years, and they have told me that, it has um, left a permanent black mark in their lives, um, being a part of this case and hearing the horrendous evidence of, of Diane's rape and murder. So, you know, there's, um, there's a, a wide uh, variety of people who have been forever affected by this case. Yeah, you know, we're talking about the progression of evidence and, and science over the last 40 years, too. I, I, the, the assistant crown you're talking to, I mean, that, that's another. She was a junior member of the team initially, wasn't she? And now she's risen yeah. to, to, to actually be the lead on this. Yeah, at the first trial, she was, in fact, an articling student who ah. was working in the Hamilton Crown's office. And uh, her job during the first trial was to make photocopies and staple things together and bring things in and out of the courtroom for, um, for the crown attorney. And uh, being the, the keener that she was, um, Cheryl Zick took every opportunity to read the files that she was photocopying and stapling and presenting to the crown. And by the time the second trial came around, she was the crown attorney uh, leading the prosecution, and her knowledge of this case is matched by no one. Uh, she she knows every detail and every fact um, uh, that's been heard over those four trials. Susan, was there a pivotal time in this whole thing that really kind of turned it around? Because, like you say, there was a conviction, then an acquittal, and then it went back and forth. Was was it finally allowing the phone call, the, the that that evidence about the phone call into into the, into the trial? It's, it just it's, it had to be awfully frustrating for the crown to know that that was out there and they couldn't use it initially. Absolutely, that that indeed was the turning point. Um, that's what led to the fourth trial was the um, uh, was a decision to allow um, evidence that had never been heard before. Previous jurors had heard that there had been a 911 call made to police in the days after Diane's body was found, and the male caller um, seemed to have intimate knowledge of the, the murder and the murder scene. Uh, but what no other jury had heard prior to the fourth trial was that um, police seemed to have traced that phone call with the help of a Bell telephone. They traced it to a phone booth um, that was at DeFasco and literally just feet from where Robert Badgerow 
was working his shift on at, at the very time that the phone call was made. Um, that was unbelievably compelling evidence and, uh, you know, seemed to um, sway the fourth jury. As you follow this, and as you've seen, again, as we mentioned, the progression of, of, of science in, in, in investigating of these things, uh, would there have been four trials? I mean, if this is, if this was more recently, given what we have now in the way of evidence and, and the way investigations are carried out, uh, would it have been a swifter road to justice? Yeah, it, it may have been. Um, since that that information about the phone booth and the phone call was um, such key evidence, of course, now we see um, cell phone records. And, uh, you know, that's sort of a staple in every major trial now. Um, at the Tim Bosma trial, for instance, we spent days, days and days uh, going through cell phone records. And, it's and that, that's, hard. A, that, that's a great comparator, isn't it? Uh, you know, in, in the initial trial for Diane's death, I mean, a lot of it is supposition. We think this happened. We think uh, at, at the Bosma trial, you were inundated with with facts, with the you know CCTV.